I doubt there's anything to me as fascinating as the before and after pictures of a home that's been restored in an old dilapidated house and then you see the finished product where they've put all the work into it or in my particular case I love old car restoration Mustangs in particular but just about any type of different car they pull the car out of the old barn and they do all the work and then you see the finished product but what you don't see is what's taking place in between what was and what is and all the amount of work time money effort that's gone into it the most fascinating example of this transformation comes from nature it is the butterfly how can a caterpillar that creeps along the ground take itself put it into a cocoon and then turn into a gorgeous beautiful butterfly but of all the transformations that take place in the world I doubt that any of them can have any comparison to the transformation that takes place in a human life when they encounter God we're not naturally inclined for that I mean we are headed our lives are headed to a dead end we are not inclined to God we don't look for God that's not our human nature but there's something that's taking place that God is doing see our lives face to a dead end but without God that's where we'd end up but it is in God that we have a hope there's a doctrine that I want to talk to you about because just I want to reinforce this our natural inclination is not to God but God is doing something because his natural inclination is to us and it's this doctrine of provenient grace this discussion today in this particular session is is a little academic but I really want it to be personal because the gospel is personal transformation and what God wants to do in me in you is personal and there comes a point where you have to lay academics aside and you have to lay all the proof texts aside and say how does this pertain to me what is God saying to me and that's what this is about today so we start with this prevenient grace and A.W. Tozer I think sums it up very succinctly why reinvent the wheel when he's done it already and he writes Christian theology teaches the doctrine of prevenient grace which briefly stated means that before a man can seek God God must have first sought the man before a sinful man can think a right thought of God there must have been a work of enlightenment done within him where does that enlightening thought come from I believe based on our past study and, and things we'll discuss in the future it's the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is God is part of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit works inside of each one of us and draws us to God but this idea of provenient grace may be best found in Jeremiah 31 3 long ago the Lord said to Israel I have loved you my people with an everlasting love with unfailing love I have drawn you to myself he's been drawing us for eternity he says he's loved us forever he's loved you forever me forever and he's saying I've been drawing you to myself that's it's God doing this work it's this prevenient grace it's him doing it first and then what is our response to it uh, again our natural response is to be separated from God that's what sin does we remind ourselves here in Isaiah but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear and the end result of this sin and the separation from God therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and to death spread to all men because we all have sinned sin is a is a disobedience against God's perfect law of love 
and it is a natural separation from God. God doesn't pull himself away from us. God doesn't want to be separated from us. He loves us. He loves you. But sin pulls us away. And lest you think, again, well, I'm a pretty good person, and I doubt that I'm as deep of a sinner as Dean Waterman is or somebody else that's around me. We have all sinned. We have all messed up. We are all separated naturally from God. We find in Romans, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's our present human condition. I have sinned. You have sinned. Everyone around us has sinned. But that's not where God wants to leave it. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're redeemed, we're forgiven. But there's a word in here that I want us to focus on real quick. Justified. Look at it again. We're justified. What, what does that word mean? Well, there's a couple of different things you could consider about this word. I'm going to give you a definition, but then I'm going to give you also something to remember that maybe clarifies it and makes it more personal. But this definition is kind of a legal term. Justification is a forensic word which indicates that it's to be understood in terms of the pronouncement which a judge renders in a courtroom proceeding. If the judge finds against the accused, the verdict is one of condemnation. But if the judge finds for the accused a verdict of acquittal, justification is rendered. In other words, guilt or innocence is established by the findings and pronouncement of a judge. Thus, justification has a declarative sense in which the defendant is not made right, but is pronounced right. We're not right, we're pronounced right. God has said, because of Christ, you are made right. You are made as if you'd never sinned. See, that's a great way to look at the word justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God sees us, through Christ. Just as if I'd never sinned. It's a beautiful consideration and a beautiful statement. That everything we've done, God looks at us when we return to him, as we see. And he pronounces, as he looks at us, Christ's righteousness on you as if you'd never sinned. We go next to Ephesians as we continue to explore this theme. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavishes on us. Here's this word now of redemption. We talked about justified. Now here's redemption. What does it mean to redeem? Well, if you have a coupon, you go and redeem the coupon, right? Well, you're turning it in. But I want to take that, re that redeeming a little bit further, a little bit deeper. It's, well, here's a great story that maybe exemplifies it. This young man had built, spent meticulous hours building a particular model boat, and he took it out to the local river. He had tied a string to it, thinking, well, I can float it and it won't get away, but it did. The string broke and went down the river, and he went, looking for it. He looked throughout the brush and he went as far down as he could and he couldn't find it. Well, it was a few weeks later, he was in town and he happened to look in the store and he saw a boat that looked like his. He went inside and he asked the store owner, can I see the boat? Yes, he got it out and he looked underneath and there was his initials that he had carved in the bottom of the boat. And he said to the store owner, this is my boat. I built this. Well, young man, somebody brought it to me and I bought it from them. I can't give it to you. But if you want to buy it, I'll let you have it for what I paid for it. And the young man said, I don't have any money. He went, he got his money together. It took him several weeks, but he came back and he bought his boat back. As he was walking out, the store owner heard him say, Well, I made you, 
and you got lost, and now I've bought you back, and you're mine forever. And maybe that exemplifies redemption in the best way possible. Jesus created humanity. He created Adam and Eve, and we've all been created in God's image, and God says to us, I created you, sin has caused you to be lost, but I have redeemed you, and I bought you back with the price of the blood of Jesus, and you are mine forever. But it's our choice, and we'll see that here in a moment, but that's what redemption is about. It's this beautiful story of a creator who knew that he was going to have to redeem what he created and still created anyways. You've been bought with a price. But it's more than that. We continue on in Ephesians going a little bit further. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. You see, it's this prevenient grace, once again, that we are separated from God. But his grace draws, it just pulls, and it loves for eternity. And it is by God, it is nothing that we have done, nothing that we can do. Because God is not content to leave us in our current condition. He does not want to have us be where we're at. So he's constantly speaking to our hearts. We, we get a reflection on this in 2 Samuel. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have become separated from him. Isn't that beautiful? God has been devising ways to draw you back to him. He's not content to leave you, leave me, leave anyone where they're at. He's always doing something. But there's always a question that seems to come up as I talk to people about this. They say, well, you know, what, what do I have to do? I, we're not used to something free. And so many other religions have a God or leader that says, if you do this, this, and this, you can achieve the ultimate goal that you're looking for, in most cases, is, is in a sense of eternal life or destiny. But God doesn't operate that way. And I want to take you to a, a story in the Old Testament. It's a fascinating story. It's found in Numbers 21. The Israelites, as they're wandering through the wilderness, they have become, again, disgruntled with God, and they're complaining, and, and God sends venomous snakes. The people are bitten, and many die. God gives a specific instruction to Moses about what he wants to do that will heal the people from these venomous snakes. The Lord said to Moses, Numbers 21, 8 and 9, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on the pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. You get bitten by a snake and all you have to do is look. You couldn't put any salve on it. You couldn't put any bandages on it. You couldn't do anything. The key to living was just looking. Well, Jesus himself referenced this particular story when he met with Nicodemus on this dark night. Nicodemus had drawn to the meeting himself, and he had asked Jesus to come. And as Jesus was speaking to him, he talked to him about being born again. Nicodemus asked what that was all about. Can I really go back into my mother's womb and be born again? But Jesus says, come on, you know what I'm talking about. You have to have a life change. Something has to happen. But there's a, there's a key, he said, to all this life change and to this, this depth of eternal life that you're seeking. Because that's one of the four things that we're looking for. And Jesus speaks to that need. And we pick it up here in, in John chapter 3. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up 
that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So he's referencing, just as that snake was lifted up, I'll be lifted up, the Son of Man, that's Christ, that all who, there's a word there, did you see it? Believe. Hmm, very interesting. That was somewhere along the line of what happened with the people. When Moses told the people, if you've been bitten by the snake and you want to be healed, look. Well, that's looking, but it's tied to something else. Let's go a little bit further. Most popular text in in the world, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Interesting. Here's that word believe one more time. Two verses and twice Jesus has used that word believe, that all who believe will. Let's go on to the next couple verses and clarify a little bit more. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. In a matter of just a few verses, Jesus has used that word believe or believed several times. He references the snake that was put up onto the pole. Just as the people looked and lived, if you look to me and believe, you will be saved. And then he flips it and also says for those who don't believe, they will be condemned or, in other words, will not have eternal life. But what's this correlation between the snake looking, Christ, and believing? A.W. Tozer sinks them together very well. Our plain man, he's speaking about a man that might be searching for faith, in reading this would make an important discovery. He would notice that look and believe are synonymous terms. Looking on the Old Testament serpent is identical with believing on the New Testament Christ. That is, the looking and the believing are the same thing. And he would understand that while Israel looked with their external eyes, believing is done with the heart. I think he would conclude that faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. You see, God's provenient grace has been drawing the gaze of our heart to him through eternity. Through the Holy Spirit speaking in each one of us, just pulling us and drawing us to look. We look at ourselves. We look at how good we are. We look at how bad we are. Or we tend to look around us to see what other people are like and compare ourselves to them. But Jesus said, all who look to me and believe can be saved and have eternal life. But it's by faith. Faith is a very interesting term. We we can't dive deeply into it here, but I think you kind of get an essence of it. Faith is looking to something you don't fully understand, but putting all of your gaze into it. As Tozer says so eloquently, it's the gaze of the heart upon God. And faith is a very crucial, important aspect of this journey that we're on, of this redemptive process of salvation, of this prevenient grace being accepted into our lives. Paul writes in Ephesians to give us an even better glimpse of how faith works in this process. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see the aspect of faith? The grace has been there. This provenient grace has been working and drawing all this time, but it is by faith that you claim it and you say, I believe it and it's it's for me. Example. A number of years ago, uh, two fellows that had graduated from high school together, they had gone two different roads. One, ten years later, was homeless. The other one, John, he was doing quite well financially. He happened to see his friend Bobby on the street one particular day, all dressed in, in 
cruddy clothes and unshaven. And he said, what has happened to you? And he said, you know, I've hit on hard times. You know, life's been rough. And John said, you know, but Bobby, I'm, I'm going to take care of you. He wrote him a check for $5,000. He said, now I go cash this. So the next day, he happened to see his buddy still there. And he said, why are you still here? I gave you a check. He said, well, I went to the bank and I looked in the bank and everybody was dressed real nice and I looked at me and you know, and John said, wait a minute. They're not going to cash a check based on who you are. They're going to cash it based on who I am. Go to the bank and use my name. You see, that's what great Provenia Grace is about. It is God wrote a check through Christ on the cross and it is our faith that cashes that check. Satan wants to say, you can't do it because he wants us to look at ourselves. But God said, no, it's not based on you. My grace is based on what I've done. All you have to do in faith is accept it. It's a beautiful process. You say, it's too easy. It, it has to be more difficult than that. Hmm, it isn't. I'll take you to a story in the book of Acts. Paul and Silas, they ended up in prison. And while they were in the prison that night, they were singing and hymns and praying. And an earthquake came. And here's what happened. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. There's that word again, believe. The, the jailer, something again, this provenient grace is working even on him. And he, he has this response. He asked Paul, Silas, what must I do to be saved? And Paul doesn't say, well, you need to do this, this, and this, and perform all these great deeds. He says, believe. Believe in Christ. Let the gaze of your soul, your heart, turn to God and believe. And watch the difference that will take place. You see, it, it is this grace alone, this provenient grace, this power within us as we look to God that changes who we are. We can't do it ourselves. I am. I frankly have tried myself. I can't do it. And I know that others have done the same. It is in God alone, this gaze as we look in faith and we claim what he has promised, that he can do what he says he will do in us. This beautiful book, Steps to Christ, considered by Billy Graham to be one of his favorites that, that leads to this path of discipleship and this process. The author writes, it is impossible for us of ourselves to escape this pit of sin in which we are sunken. Our hearts are evil and we cannot change them. There must be a power working from within, a new life from above before man can change from sin to holiness. That power is Christ. His grace alone can quicken the lifeless faculties of the soul and attract it to God, to holiness. You see, it's in Christ. As we look to him, he said, as that snake was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up and it will draw all men to me and that all who believe will have eternal life. It is believe. Believing. That's it. Maybe. You said, well, it, I knew there was a catch. Well, believe is one thing, but to act on that belief is quite another. So in 1859, Blondin, who was a circus act, he decided he wanted to raise some awareness and promote the circus. So he strung a, a high wire across Niagara Falls. He was very fascinating. People were watching, people were clapping. He would walk across, he would do different things. And finally he took a wheelbarrow across. He got to the other side 
and he said, how many of you believe that I could carry a man in this wheelbarrow and go all the way across back to the other side? And everybody raised their hands. Oh yeah, I believe, I believe. How many of you would be willing to actually get in the wheelbarrow and let me take you across? Nobody raised their hands. You see, belief is one thing. Acting on that belief and letting it change you is something else. And, and therein lies the process within us. You say, oh, I knew there was a catch. No, it's a natural outflowing of this belief. Once you recognize what God has done for you and you place your belief on him, letting the gates of the heart respond to that provenient grace, we have something that takes place in us. What, what, what is that one thing? Peter's first sermon, day of Pentecost, first recorded sermon in the book of Acts. And Peter starts to preach. And he, as he's preaching, he's sharing about Jesus. He's talking about what they've done, what Christ's life means. And then something took place in the listeners. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter gave them a key word, repent. Hmm. You see, it was believe and then repent. What does that word repent mean? It's a life change. We'll give you an example here in Ezekiel. But if a wicked man turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Like Blondin with the wheelbarrow. It's one thing to believe that he could do it, with another person. It's another thing to believe that he could do it with me. It's the same way with God. We look with the gaze of our heart. We respond to this provenient grace. We understand maybe academically about justification and redemption, but salvation is not academic. Salvation is personal, and it is a simple act of God drawing us, and we respond, and we believe, and then a life change takes place, and repentance. So repentance is really a U-turn. It's saying the direction that I was going towards sin, I will return back to God. Remember the what I talked about in the last session? A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. That's repentance. It's turning around and that's stepping back towards God because that belief leads to an action. I can believe with my head, but will I let it lead my heart and my life? Now, he offers a full pardon when we turn back, when we repent. That's the best part. You see, we, Satan wants us to think, you are too bad. You're too wrong. You're too guilty. You're too shameful. You're too embarrassing. God can't do anything with you. But God gives us an amazing promise found in Isaiah. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways. That's repentance. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Again, repentance. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Amazing. He didn't just say pardon. He said abundantly pardon. That's what God wants to do in me, in you. Our part is to confess. That is an agreement. I say, I confess. I agree. I'm a sinner. Satan said, yep, you're right. You got all these sins. I know what you did. I know what you did last night. I know what you did last week. I know the, some of the deepest, darkest things that nobody else knows. God says, I know too, and I forgive you. And I will abundantly pardon if you're willing to t believe in me. Let the gaze of your heart reflect on me and also turn away from the life that you've been living. So we confess, 
we are justified, we repent, we turn to God, and then we have these promises of our sins being forgiven. But why does that happen? Well, let's look in Ezekiel. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn away from his ways and live? You see, God doesn't want us to die in our sins. The path that we're headed towards a dead end life, that's not what he wants. He wants more for us. He's given more for us. It's for his sake. He does it for him. Second uh, Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When, when Jesus created Adam and Eve and all of humanity, his desire was that we would be in one continuous whole relationship with him. And then sin broke it. God has been doing everything he can before creation and since to restore that relationship that's been broken by sin between himself and us. His provenient grace has been drawing. Our heart looks, it feels, it senses, and we repent. And we ask ourselves, why would God do this? And God says, I do it because I don't want you to be lost. I don't want anyone to be lost. You see, there is a great truth right here. People think of hell and this ever-burning, tormenting hell fire. And they say, I don't get it. A person only lives for 10, 15, 20, 50, 80, 100 years, and they're sinners and they don't accept God and God's going to burn them forever in hell. No, God says, I don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. I don't want anybody to perish. That's not what he wants. He wants a full restoration of the relationship that he created in the Garden of Eden. That's what he's wanting. And he promises that if you turn to me, I will give this to you. I can refresh you. Well, we, we go to Peter's second sermon in Acts 3 to find out more about this refreshing that God wants to give to us. Repent then, there's that word, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Every sin gone. Every sin forgiven. Every sin pardoned. You say, well, it just sounds way too easy. Well, it is actually. Get a glimpse in Isaiah just what God wants to do and what it means to us. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. This is one of the most beautiful truths that you may ever uncover. That everything in your life that you've brought up to this point, God can get rid of because of Christ. There's a story about Robert Bruce, Scotland. 14th century. He's trying to regain the crown. And the enemy has gotten his actual bloodhounds, and they have sicked his bloodhounds on himself, on his trail. And the servants that were with Robert Bruce said, we are, we are done for. They are tracking us down. We're going to be caught, and everything you want is going to be gone. Robert Bruce said, no, I have an idea. And so he runs into the forest, runs and dives into the river with his servants swims to the other side and takes off. In the woods, they can hear the bloodhounds as they're baying and getting close to the water, and then they stop. You see, the scent was lost there at the river. And it's kind of like Satan. He has been hounding us, hounding us, hounding us until we dive into that river of God's grace flowing from the cross, Christ's blood. And we're forgiven. And Satan can say everything he wants, but he can't hold it against us because we're forgiven. We are justified just as if I'd never sinned. You see, yes, they're academic words, but they are life. They are personal. They are eternity because we believe and we accept, we repent, and we start this new life. And God said, I'm going to wipe it all clean and cleanse it. Cleanse, redeem, period. 
further on in Psalms, we get more testimony of this. I could preach this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And why does he do it? You think he just does it for us, right? God says, well, um, it's a little bit selfish. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. For his sake. Because he doesn't want anything to stand in the way of his provenient grace and his eternal love that's been drawing you. And what does he want to do with those sins? You, you say, Dean, if you knew, well, he does. I got mine. I got things I'm embarrassed about that I hope nobody ever knows about. But I'm forgiven. Because where do they go? Where do these sins go? The deepest part of the ocean is over seven miles deep. And here's the promise what God will do with our sins when he forgives us and pardons us. What he's going to do with them. Who is God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Redeemed reconciled, restored, renewed, sins deleted, boop, forever, done, because of his great love for us. I don't know, it's very compelling. In Colossians, Paul writes, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is Christ's depth of his love. It's God as the Trinity, the depth of the love that compelled them to put a plan of redemption into place before the creation of the world. I've mentioned this already, but it's beautiful and it's worth restating. The Creator, as He was forming Adam and Eve, knew by giving them freedom of choice there existed the possibility they may reject and be disobedient. And therefore sin and separation and eternal death would come into the world. But He created a plan before He created humans that I will redeem. I will buy them back if I need to. And it was his life on the cross that brought this love full circle, that restored this beautiful covenant relationship that was lost because of sin. Jesus did what we could not do, and he did it for us because he loves us too much. He can't imagine heaven without us, so he did it that way. We reflect in 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And when you recognize what Jesus has done for you and everything that he's promised and the sins that are forgiven and everything that's gone. Remember, belief leads to something different. It's that repentance. It's that, it's that U-turn to go back this direction. But it's more than that. It's, it's, a, it's a life change that takes over. I can just share as we start to wrap this up here a couple things that will take place as we let that life change, that belief take part of us. It's not just the gaze of the heart, it's a change in our hearts. Therefore, found in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Paul writes again in Ephesians, when you have heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. He restores us. He reconciles us. He, he, he renews that covenant. But he said, I'm not content to just leave you where you're at. I can do something. I can change you if you'll allow me. If you repent and turn away 
and look to me and believe and let me work in your heart, I can do something. It's a partnership with God. He changes us. He renews us. It's like that, that old home restoration, that old car restoration, or even better yet, the caterpillar who becomes a butterfly. It, it can't be explained, but God does it. Well, Norman Gully tries to explain it, and I think he does a fairly good job. Though Christ is the only Savior, the relationship with him requires humans, with his help, to do their part in the saving relationship between them. Paul spoke of this to church members in Philippi. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. That's from Philippians 4.8. This partnership with God is a beautiful thing. He works in us to do what we cannot do ourselves. He wants to mold us and shape us to reflect Jesus. He's not content to just leave us where we're at. He doesn't want you to just be where you're at. He begins an process, if you want to use an academic word, of sanctification. I call it character development. It is, it is drawing us to live our life, a belief from the heart reflecting on God and letting that belief change who we are. See, Jesus said, for all who believe may have eternal life. But once again, you can believe and not do something. Believing is actually requiring an action. There's a lot of people who believe Blondin could take a person over in the wheelbarrow, but nobody was willing to actually get in the wheelbarrow to find out if he could. There are a lot of people who believe that Jesus can save, but they don't let their actions and their life speak. And that's what God is saying. I want to shape you and mold you. You repent from your life that you had. And together in a partnership, I will help you. And you say, well, I don't think I can. I've battled addiction for too long. Alcohol, drugs, pornography. I have this addiction that I can't break. Jesus says, I can help you. Everything that you've been tempted, I have faced it. We have this promise found in Hebrews. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, that would be Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus said, I lived the perfect life. I drew on the grace of my Father, his leading, his power, his strength, and everything that was available to me is available to you. And I can understand. So when you're weak, he knows. You'll remember in the last session, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye who are burdened and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you. He's saying, If you let me yoke with you, if you help me partner with you, everything you face, I will go through it with you. There's not one thing that you have in your life right now that Jesus cannot give you the power to come overcome. Remember the caterpillar turning into a butterfly, the transformation? It's a process, and God knows that. He does it with you in his time. He works in us, works with us. I remember when I was in grade school, there was a caterpillar we had put in a jar. It had gone into a cocoon. And as it was coming out, one of the kids started to help it. That butterfly never flew. Because there's humans around you that are trying to help you. But God says, let me do it in my time. And I will do it my way. And I will walk with you through this process and help you change and become the man or the woman that I know you can be and that I see in you. You confess that you're a sinner. You repent, you're forgiven. You are reconciled and restored and renewed. And then you are set on a path to the direction that God wants you to live, that's set on a path and a course to heaven. But what 
keeps most of us back. Again, it's sin. I believe we're so used to miring around in our sin that we really can't see that there could be anything else. There's a story told from many years ago. A farmer came upon a baby eagle. The parents had been killed. And this little baby eagle was by itself, and he brought it home. He clipped its wings, and he bound it so it couldn't fly, and he put it in with his chickens. Over time, the eagle, this, it, even as it got bigger, it would be found in the barnyard pecking and eating and running around like a chicken. A naturalist came one particular day. He had heard about this eagle, and he asked the farmer, has he ever flown? He said, no, he's never flown. Well, why not? Well, I clip his wings. Well, let his wings grow. We'll see what happens. So the farmer let the wings grow out over the next few weeks, and the naturalist came back. But yet he was still running around like a chicken, still pecking and clawing and roosting and doing all the things like a chicken. And the naturalist said, I have an idea. Let's take him up to that hill over there. So they put the eagle in a box, and they carefully took him and put him in the truck, and then they drove up the hill. They took the eagle out, and they set him up onto a limb overlooking the valley. And it wasn't long that the eagle took off and started to fly. Is it possible that you and I have been wandering around so much with the chickens that we have forgotten that God created us to fly? He never designed for us to be mired in sin, ever. He designed us for eternity with him. No, that's what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes. We were created with eternity in our hearts. To love God forever, that's our design. That is what we were created for. That's our purpose. It sets our moral compass. It's what God's destined for us for our life forever. I appeal to you as I close. Who are you going to believe? You're going to believe what Satan says about you, or are you going to believe what God says about you and what he wants to do with you? It's, it's a very simple promise. First down, one nine. if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you come, if you confess, I'll forgive, I'll redeem, I'll restore. His provenient grace has been reaching out and just drawing you. The Holy Spirit speaking to you right now, perhaps. Who are you going to believe? There was a husband and wife. They were getting into arguments and they talked about getting a divorce. They'd been married for 15 plus years. And they had an idea. The woman had heard about it. And so she talked to her husband. She said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put two boxes. And every time you do something that I don't like, I'm going to drop it in the box. And you can do likewise. And so for 30 days, they did this. She'd see something and she'd write a note, drop it in. And then he'd go right and drop it in his box. 30 days go by. They sit down and the husband opens his box. And it says, you didn't put your socks away. You didn't take the laundry. You didn't do the dishes. You didn't do this. You didn't, 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 didn't pay paper after paper after paper after paper. And she's looking with a smug satisfaction. <laughs> Got him. Then it comes time and he takes the box and he pushes it to her. And she opens it up. First slip, I love you. Second slip, I love you. One after another, I love you. I love you. I love you. You see, if there is two boxes, one from Satan and one from God, Satan's would tell you all the things that's wrong with you. And God says over and over, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Which one are you going to believe? 
I would appeal to you right now that you just simply give it to God. In fact, I'll pray with you right now. Because God wants to restore. He's been drawing and he wants to move in your heart. And have your heart stop looking at self and being drawn to all your failures and look to him in love. Father, I do not know who is listening right now, but you do and your Holy Spirit is with them and may you draw them to you, recognizing that one, we just confess, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of your saving, amazing grace. May you justify, may you cleanse, may you restore, may you speak to the person who's listening to this at this very moment recognizing that they can find in you every truth about who they are in Christ. And they do not have to listen to the lies that Satan has plastered into their heart, into their mind. As Satan keeps telling them everything that's wrong, you keep telling them, I love you. And may they find in you the hope and the peace that comes from a saving relationship by looking and believing. In Christ's name, amen.